Good morning. Um, I've made a little mistake in the bulletin. I gave Ashley the wrong text. Uh, sorry about that. So you might have to go old school and actually have a Bible or new school and have an iPhone or something with an app on it or something. Because we're actually looking at the second letter to the churches, uh, which is actually in um, Revelation 2. It's verses 8 through 11. This is the message that Jesus speaks to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. So this morning, I'll just read this to you. Hear the word of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and who came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. I told you last week that these, these are prophetic messages. Each, of, each one of them, though we call them a letter, are actually a prophetic message of the Lord Jesus directly to the church. And though it is addressed to a specific church, and the seven churches are going to form, in a sense, a, a circular letter, the letter will circulate to these seven churches. What's unusual here is that the messages are at the beginning of the letter. Generally speaking, when you write a general letter, you put postscripts. You, uh, you, you either seal or you send a, a special message to each church. This circular letter of Revelation starts off with the letters to the churches, and it is intended that each church reads every other church's message. So there's some, as you look at that, there's some conclusion that can be drawn that the purpose and the, the uh, desire of the Lord Jesus in, in this is that every church would read these letters, that every church would take to heart what these letters have to say. In each of these messages, he always identifies himself, and he identifies himself in a way that is appropriate and adequate to what he's about to write to that particular church. Then he identifies certain characteristics of that church. He, generally speaking, makes a, 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 a sort of request or a, 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 a somewhat of a commandment or a principle or something that he wants them to follow. And then he also speaks to them of the reward that will come if they will obey and if they will overcome. In this particular letter, I, I was thinking last week, uh, as I preached those three times on uh, the letter to the Ephesus, I was thinking, wow, this is a heavy, every, each service, it seemed like it felt heavier and heavier. And that, then we get to Smyrna, I'm like, that was almost nothing compared to this week of how heavy this message is. I would even say to you, and, and, and I say this to you as, as my favorite congregation of all time, and... Uh, my favorite people, uh, this letter is not for the faint of heart. Uh, 
This is not for peripheral Christians. This is for people who at least want to be sold out to Jesus. Otherwise, this will seem as a very unfair message. This, this is a message asking for a level of surrender and yieldedness that you cannot do apart from the Holy Spirit. Because he's asking something so deep, he's asking for their lives, really. If you look at this letter, it's, it's pretty fascinating. The whole way that our present age mirrors this past of almost 2,000 years ago there's almost nothing left of the ancient city of Smyrna. It's in the, it's in the country of Turkey. Uh, matter of fact, you can go to the present-day city, which is called Izmir, and you can go to a park that has some of the ancient ruins, some of the old walls of Smyrna, and that's all that's left. But Izmir, uh, for years and years, was a very modern and progressive uh, city in Turkey that was open to a much more um, free expression of culture and life. But because of that, in 2007, uh, some nationalists, Islamic nationalists, decided that there had been too much freedom in Izmir. They went to a small Christian print shop, five or so of these Turkish nationalists, these Muslim nationalists, went to this Christian print shop and they, they, uh, they brutalized, they tortured, and then they slaughtered three Christian ministers. Two were Turkish who had been uh, converted from Islam to Christianity, and one was German. These five um, uh, nationalists, uh, were uh, well, four of them were arrested. One uh, was chased by the police, went to the uh, roof of the building, and jumped off and killed himself. The other four have been in court for over seven years and were just released last year on lack of evidence or something of that sort. If if you're tracking with me on this, you'll realize that what Jesus said to the church at Smyrna even in 2007, was still happening in the same location. The persecution, the oppression, even the loss of life for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ismir, there's, there's a small Christian community, and so when these three men were, uh, when they were being buried in their, the, the funeral service, a small Baptist church, it's the largest Baptist church, in that city, but it's only about 100 people, they hosted the funeral. Even though they knew, the pastor knew, that by doing so, they now became themselves marked for persecution and for oppression. And so they boldly, uh, the Christians of the city, turned out and honored the lives of these three men who were martyred for their faith. Um, while the funeral service was going on, the national security force of Turkey came and filmed the face of everybody who was there. So now they are all known. But they decided that whether or not they died for Christ or they lived for Christ, they were going to live for the glory of God in public. They were going to publicly express their faith. Now, if, 
you look at this situation that's happening today, and then you listen to the words that were spoken over that territory 2,000 years ago, you realize that there are places, there are places where Jesus is speaking into, there are things that he's saying from 2,000 years ago that you and I need to pay attention to even today. And so this letter, this message that he makes to, to the Germans, I mean to the Germans, to the Smyrnans, uh, I was thinking about that German guy who was killed, uh, the Smyrnans, uh, this message, he, he begins to speak about his own martyrdom from the very beginning, his prophetic message. He, he speaks and he says, this is who I am. I am the first and the last. Now this if you can grab hold of this revelation of Jesus, another, uh, number one, he's saying everything that you are, everything you have, everything that you will be, all of it originates from me. I am your source. I am the source of your life. Now, this, this can be just a nice theological concept, or it can be a foundation for everything that goes on in your life. This is not an easy thing to adjust to and to yield to. But the, the idea is that you yourself are not the initiator. You're not the originator. You're not the source for your life. He is. And, and there's a sense in which, like, if you have no prayer life, then if you have no meaningful prayer life, then basically you're saying you're the source. If, if you have no yieldedness to God and you're always trying to get God to do your thing, to bless your mess, if you're always doing that, then you're saying, I'm first. I'm first. And even arrogantly without knowing it, sometimes people are also saying, I'm first and I'm last. Because to say that he's the last is to make a bold pronouncement that he is ultimate. That he is everything. And, and, and so when you and I can humble ourselves and we can set our pride aside and we can say, Jesus, you're my first and you're my last. If you can do that, then you can face the storms of life. You can face the prosperity that comes. You can, you can face the famines that come. But if you're first and if you're last, if you're ultimate, then all God is is kind of a, a soda machine that you put, you know, you put coins in and try to get what you want out of it. And, and he becomes nothing more than just a servant of your dreams or leverage and influence to get what you want to happen, happen. So he begins this very heavy message that he's speaking to the church and he says, I'm the first, and I'm the last. And there's some sense in which you cannot hear the rest of the message until he's your first, and he's your last. And, and what's going to happen as he speaks to the, the Christians in Smyrna is they're going to be tested in this. The very word test is in this message. They're going to be tested as to whether they trust or whether they believe that he is truly the first and last. Now, he also says this, I was the one who was dead, and now I am living. 
So he was the first great martyr, but he also brings with his martyrdom the fact that death could not hold him, that he, he who was dead is now alive. That becomes really important. You see, whether you know it or not, you're being heavily influenced by, by movies, by col- our culture, by commercials, by everything that's around you is a constant bombardment that this life is all that matters. That your experiences right now, you, whether you feel happy or sad, whether you feel rich or poor, there is a, a constant bombardment against every sense that you have that this is all that there is. You see, every time someone tells you, it doesn't matter what you believe, what they're saying is, this is all that there is. It doesn't matter how you behave. You can behave sexually any way you want to. They're saying it, the reason of that is because this is all that there is. But what Jesus is saying is that I have gone into death, and death is not all that there is. That's important for you to get. Because if you have to go into suffering, or if you have to go into self-sacrifice, or if you have to go into a season of testing, you will have to remember this is not all that there is. Because what happens to most people is as soon as life does not go the way they want, they immediately begin to say prayer doesn't work, God doesn't work, Christianity doesn't work. Because they believe the lie that this is all that there is. This is not all that there is. We have a risen, living Lord and Savior, and his name is Jesus. And he's been where you haven't even been yet. And he's come back from there victorious. And so he can ask what he's about to ask of these Christians. And it's pretty, it's pretty interesting to me that when he speaks these words, there's no comfort here, in a sense. There's no condolences. For example, when I have to ask someone to do something that I don't really want to ask them to do, or I'm asking them to do something that I think is very difficult, I always begin with, I'm sorry to bother you, but. Anybody else? I mean, you know what you're about to ask is going to be an inconvenience, or you know it's going to cost something to them, or whatever, and you begin with, I'm so sorry to have to do this. Jesus doesn't say that at all. It's really important that you catch this. Now, I'm going to give you a term which you may forget, but would be helpful if you remember. It's a term that uh, a man by the name of Brennan Manning coined, and he wrote a book on it, and he called it Ruthless Trust. Okay, I want you to take your finger, see that you're awake. All right, point to somebody, poke them if you want to. All right, and say, you need, you need ruthless trust. <laughs> Some of you are just ruthless. <laughs> All right, let me explain what I mean by that. You know what trust means. Trust means you've yielded yourself, you've opened yourself up, you've become vulnerable, you've bound in some ways your life to somebody else, your fortunes, your future, that's trust. Ruthless trust is trust where you do not allow, will not allow pity 
of yourself. When something is ruthless, it is without pity. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is I'm about to ask you something that would easily cause you to feel sorry for yourself. But I'm going to ask for a ruthless trust. I'm going to ask for you to trust me without pity, without pitying yourself. Now that is a deep request. Because many of us in this room, we love pity parties. We're always sorry no one joins us in them, but we love to feel sorry for ourselves. Complaining is a pity party. Whining is a pity party. It is us saying, oh, will you not recognize how difficult my life is, how hard everything is, how I have to live with this awful husband and these terrible children and this awful job? See, that's not ruthless. That's pitiful. That's full of pity for me. And what Jesus is asking in this message that he writes to Smyrna is that they will suffer and not fall into self-pity. Complaining, whining. Because in some ways, friend, a sacrifice ceases to be a sacrifice if you need everybody to recognize that it's a sacrifice. All right, now that was ingenious just then, okay? Every now and then you have to just go, ooh, wow. <laughs> you understand? If everyone has to recognize your sacrifice, then it has lost the quality of sacrifice. There you go. You Correct. <laughs> Appropriate. Think about this with me. When Jesus speaks to the people at Smyrna, he's asking them to suffer. He's asking them to endure a level of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And what he's saying to them is, I'm calling you to this. And in his mind, in his perspective, their call in Smyrna, even the call today in what now is Ismir instead of Smyrna, he calls it a high calling. He calls it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel. To identify with Jesus is to identify with his suffering. This is at the basis. This is sort of Christianity 101. To join in the fellowship of his sufferings. To know Christ is to know a level of suffering. And I just want to remind you that this flies in the face of your intuition. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, in, Luke, uh, in the Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us four woes. And when he says these four woes, he's saying there are four intuitive ways that you live, that you live according to the flesh, you live according to ego, the ways that you live according to your own self-direction uh, and purpose and protection. And he says those ways of living are actually ways that will destroy you. And he called them woes. And the four are this. The, the need that you have to have power. If anyone's ever called you a control freak, that's a woe that Jesus has spoken to you. says your need for control is a fleshly need, not a spirit need. When you choose power... And to have power over people and try to have power over circumstances. In other words, you have an unsurrendered will. 
makes you resistant to the request of Jesus. Instead of having a default setting with the Lord of saying yes, you have a default setting of saying no. Because if this doesn't give me power, if this doesn't give me control, if this doesn't give me influence. The second woe that he says is an overdone need and desire for comfort. You're unwilling to change. You're unwilling to yield. You're unwilling to make coarse alterations because you want the comfort. You want to live in your comfort zone. Jesus calls that a woe, this overdone desire for comfort. Then he says the other woe is recognition. This is why I was telling you, if, if you begin to say, I'm sacrificing, don't you all see it? Suddenly what you've done is taken a spiritual sacrifice and made it fleshly. You've made it about you and about your glory. Look how glorious my sacrifice is. I can't tell you the number of times I've you know, been a pastor for over 30 years, coming up on 35. How many people get mad because they don't get enough recognition in the church? And they leave and they think they're, they're kind of shaking the dust off their feet. And they say this, you will not be able to survive without me in this church. And I usually say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Because if you need that kind of recognition, then you're not serving the Lord. You're serving yourself. Because that recognition comes not from a Holy Spirit place. It comes from a broken soul place. A wounded place. And the last one is, and see, we live, we live in probably the most spiritual stronghold of success in all the world. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Depending on, you know, whether it's Frank singing it or... Uh, Liza, right? Whichever one, depending on whether you win or lose. And uh, some of you know what I'm saying. You know, the idea of success, it becomes, I can validate my existence by my success. And Jesus says, woe. Woe to you. And see, this is all in this letter. In this letter, Jesus is saying, look, you've got to lay down power. You've got to let go of comfort. You've got to not let the world define what success is. They're calling you poor, and I'm calling you rich, Jesus says. Because you, you have to understand, Smyrna was, like, was very much like our area in present day. It was a very prosperous city. It was on the move up, but it was also a city utterly and completely dedicated to Rome as its God. They actually had the first temple in Smyrna that was ever built to the goddess Roma. And it was mandatory that in order to do business in Smyrna, you had to bow the knee to Caesar as God. And so these Christians were suffering in some very specific ways. The nature of the suffering that they, they experienced, it taught, Jesus talked about your living in, a, in an impoverished sort of position, it being a city that was controlled by the Romans, by the Roman laws, if you're a Christian, you couldn't join the guilds. So therefore, if you had a skill or a trade, you couldn't ply or use that skill or trade because you didn't belong to the guilds. 
And because you were a Christian, you couldn't get into the networks of, of different groups that would allow you to advance in society. So you were excluded from the economy of the city. And then the other thing was that anyone associated with you was looked upon suspiciously. So your own family would disinherit you and send you out from them so that you would have no support and no um, uh, connection whatsoever to your own family because you were following Christ. This is still happening today. Um, recently, I was in a, a, a conference with uh, Muslim-born believers. And this one believer was speaking to me about the country that he lives in and where it's illegal to be a Christian. And he, he had a dream. He had been a Muslim his whole life. He had, had a dream. And in the night, he, this recurring dream started happening where Jesus was calling him and Jesus was asking him, go find one of my churches and ask them who I am. He went and he uh, uh, stumbled around the city where he's from and tried to find a church. And finally, he discovered a church. He went into the church. He told him his dream. And he said, he said, I need to know who this is. I need to know who this is. And the pastor of the church led this, this uh, Muslim man to Christ. Uh, he went back. He told his family he was then converted. He got baptized. Immediately upon his conversion, he uh, was completely disinherited and completely cast out by his family. So he said, okay, for the sake of Christ, I'm going to leave all of that behind, I'm going to follow Jesus with my whole heart. He began to prepare to be a pastor. He, um, he got a, a, a very interesting uh, call from a local or national uh, journalist. And this journalist said, I have all the names of all the Christians in our country. And I have files on every one of them. And I'm about to turn them over to the secret police so that every one of them will be persecuted. She said, but if you will get on national television and you will do an interview with me, I will give you all the names and all the files and they won't go to the police. And he said, you know, he prayed about it. He thought about it because he knew that if he got on national television and began to share his faith and began to share his story and his testimony of how he had been a Muslim who had converted to Christ, he knew that, the death, that a death warrant would be signed out on his name. So he prayed, he asked others, he said he got a varied response from different ones, who, some who said, save yourself, and others who said, it's worth it that you might die so that others might live. And so he, in the end he said, people were basically no help to me <laughs> whatsoever, and I had to make the decision for myself. He went on national television. He boldly proclaimed Jesus to his entire nation. And it, it, he knew it was being seen. It was prime time. He was going to be seen by the whole nation. Everywhere he goes, everybody knows him. He saved the lives of all of those people, but he didn't know if he was saving his own life. He was captured. He was imprisoned. He was tortured and beaten. But at the same time, there was so much respect for his courage that they let him go. And he continues today in a very, very unsafe realm. He continues serving Christ and leading others to Christ. He did say this one thing to me. 
He said, I do not permit people to be members of my church unless they have been tortured. (laughs) I thought that was an interesting requirement for membership there. So this idea of living in poverty is still going on, but Jesus is speaking to them prophetically and saying, because of me, you will seem poor, but because of me, you are rich. It all is a matter of what you consider rich. In other words, if ultimate for you is the house you live in, then maybe you're not successful. If the ultimate for you is clothes you wear, a car you drive, or the job you have, if you believed into the lie of this world, then you'll always think you're poor. Because I don't, I've never yet seen where anyone who has all kinds of money thinks themselves to be enough or to have enough. And so Jesus is saying, when you realize that you have me, then no matter what the world says of your success, you are rich. Then secondly, he says, you're going to suffer pain for my name's sake. And basically what he's talking about is that those who oppose you will never care about the truth. And he goes into and uses a word called slander or blaspheme to slander you. Even today, there's the pastor who allowed the funeral service to take place in the Baptist church. They, they came into his church and they began to accuse him. In a Turkish newspaper, they call him, his name is Pastor Ersten Sevik. They accused him of coercive evangelism. They said he uses money and drugs to lure young people into Christianity. Now, I mean, if you know anything about Baptists, that is not their methodology. Okay, that is, so it's a ridiculous and a ludicrous slander. But when a nation already is against you, they just need anything to attack you. So what Jesus is speaking is still going on today, that it isn't really about facts. It isn't really about truth. It's about emotion. It's about the end. I want to destroy you. And Jesus said, this was taking place 2,000 years ago, and I'm telling you, it's still taking place in 2007. Now, there's some of you who have believed a lie about something. You're not going to necessarily walk out of here agreeing with me. But I want to put this in there just to maybe rub on the way you think for a little bit. Some of you have thought that the only thing you have is your reputation. Some of you have thought the only thing you have is your good name. I want to tell you the truth. In this world, people can take away your reputation and your good name in a minute. Because the rules of Satan do not apply to what you think is true or factual or anything else. In a minute, he can speak a lie about you and whisper a slander about you. And so if the thing you're holding on to is your worth or your value is my good name or my good reputation, it can be stolen by the thief. But if the thing you hold on to is the name of Jesus, not your name, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot steal that name. He tried to kill him, but he rose again from the dead. He's tried to destroy his church, 
but the church gets stronger in persecution. Come on, that was another good one right there, okay? Stay with me. There's nuggets in here for you. (laughs) Are you tracking with me on this? See, I, I hear this all the time, this prideful Christianity. My name, my reputation. Who cares? It's not your name that's going to get you into heaven. It's not your name that makes your prayers effectual. It's his name. And see, if I can die to my name, if I can die to my reputation, then I can live to his. Because that's the only record that matters. The only resume that matters in my life is the resume of the Lord Jesus Christ. No other record matters. So he says to his church, not only are they going to slander you, but they're going to start throwing you in jail. Now, in the book of Revelation, days, numbers are generally symbolic and figurative. He says something very interesting. He says, I, I know your tribulation. He doesn't say, I know your tribulations. There's a, there's a distinct difference between the two in, in this way. If he says, I know your tribulations, he's saying you're having these scattered times of trials. He says, I know your tribulation, he's saying a continuous season of trial. And so when he uses the word 10 days, you will be thrown into prison for 10 days. It is very likely he's talking about a season in their life, a time period, more than just it'll happen for 10 specific days. He's really saying to them, prepare yourselves, get ready, something's coming And it's going to last longer than you want it to. And it's not going to end until it's over. And that's not an easy thing. And most of us in here, if you tell me you're going to suffer for a week, we can handle it. But when you start thinking, I'm going to suffer for an extended period of time. I'm not going to know when it's over. And my comforts are taken from me. And any power is taken from me. Then it has to be that there's this raw sort of naked trust. A ruthless trust in Jesus. And that's what he's asking for from them here. Now, the response that Jesus asked of this church is twofold. One is he says they will need courage. Do you know, 366 times in the Bible it says do not be afraid. One for every day. One for leap year. Every single day, there is a word to you from the Lord. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. How do you get to the place where you're not afraid? Well, one of the issues that many of us have is that where we have had courage in our lives, it's where we were naturally strong. Like there are some people in athletics who are courageous in athletics. They are amazingly strong. You look at them and you say, wow. That is just such a strong person. But then they're interviewed and you go, that person cannot communicate. Because they're naturally strong on the athletic field, but not strong in their emotion, their communication, or other things. There are people who are amazingly strong in a battle, but are horrible to be married to. Because their natural strength is in this one place, but in this other place there's fear. There's, there's fright. There's, 
stuckness, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you look at, you look at your life, and where do you think Satan's going to go after you? He's not going to go after you where you're strong. He's going to go after you where you're weak. So what Jesus is speaking of is a supernatural source of courage, a courage that is not your own, a courage that isn't coming from your own natural strength, but is coming from that ruthless faith in Jesus. This is never easy for me. I mean, I see people going through difficult times. I mean, part of me just wants to take them in my arms or put my arm around them or whatever it is and make them safe. But yet, if I were to do that, they would never grow any supernatural strength. They would never have any muscles of their own. When I look back over my life, everything that I did not choose and did not want are the very events and circumstances that made me into the man that Jesus is making me into. And without those things, I would, never, I would never have any spiritual muscles. I would have no spiritual strength whatsoever because I would still be trusting in my natural strength. I would still be living in my own comfort zone. And prophetically, Jesus is saying, he tests us so that he can refine us. His purpose is to polish the beauty of the spirit, of the soul, of the, even the body that he's given you, to polish it to such glory and beauty as it would not have otherwise. But you have to, you have to be at a place where you love him, you trust him, you believe him enough to let that happen. If any of you ever says to somebody in a difficult circumstance, you say to them, God intends this for good, I give them permission to punch you. Because you're one of Job's friends. They, they don't need you to tell them what they already know. They don't need you to tell them in a way that, that tells them you're, you're small, you're insignificant, and I'm smart, and I know things. But it's still true that what's going on is the very thing that the enemy has intended for evil, God has intended for good. But we have to be careful how we apply that to our friends when they're going through trouble. We have to have a faith often that what God is doing in the life of one who is suffering is going to turn out well and believe and trust that the purposes of God will be uh, fulfilled in the life of that friend just as much as we have to believe it for ourselves. That's why so often when we comfort one another, we actually hurt each other. Because we say things and we don't think about, I need to trust that what God's doing in this person's life is going to come to fruition. That he who began a good work in this person is going to fulfill it. Because in the end, the source of your strength, the source of my strength, is not natural, but supernatural. Well, the other thing he says is you've got to have discernment. If you're going to make it through a trial, you have to have discernment. It's interesting, the Lord doesn't say, the people in Smyrna are awful, terrible people. But they're going to treat the Christians in an awful, terrible way. Like, like those, five, those five men that broke in and tortured and killed and slaughtered, 
these three Christians, I mean, they did to them things that should not be done to any human being. But the Lord says, don't look at them and say, they're awful, terrible people. What the Lord says, this too is supernatural. He's saying that there are people who are going to come in the, in the name of their religion, and they're going to come in the name of their synagogue, and they're going to turn on you. And there, there is some practical aspect that for some reason, uh, that, that in order for the Jewish people in some ways to escape Roman persecution... They would often rat out Christians so that they would get the persecution and the Jews would not. And so there's a a practical aspect to this, but the Lord doesn't look at the practicality of it. He says, what's behind it? And he says, behind it is the work of the accuser. Behind it is the work of the enemy. And so let me just quickly tell you what discernment does. When someone betrays you, when someone lets you down, when someone does what you don't expect them to do or they don't do what they told you they would do, whatever it is, what the Lord says is, look at what's behind that. Forgive the person, but discern the source. In other words, when Peter said to Jesus, uh, you're not going to go to the cross, you're not going to suffer for my sake, you're not going to suffer for our sake, And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. He's not saying Peter is Satan. He's saying that Satan is putting into Peter's mind, thoughts, words, the accusations that are now being spoken. So Jesus could forgive and love and have fellowship even with Peter, but he knew where the source of that evil was coming from. If if you spend your whole life and all you are is mad at people who betray you, who, who've hurt you, who've disappointed you, you spend your whole life there, then Satan has you. But when you look and you say, I'm in a battle. I'm in a battle. And my, my desire is to live for the glory of God. And, and living for the glory of God means I have to live free from any enemies in my own heart. Here, here would be a goal I'd give you friend of mine says this is his goal I like it that you live and die with no enemies let me explain what I mean by that I'm not saying that people won't hate you that's not your responsibility I'm saying you don't hate them you choose to love them you choose to forgive them you choose because ultimate to you the first and the last is the Lord Jesus Christ not you not your heart And you say, Lord, the enemy intended for evil, but you intended this for good. And you begin to let go of the the unforgiveness, the bitterness, and you begin to live as one who in some ways becomes invincible. I've run out of time, but let me just say this one thing. Here's the reward. The crown that is waiting for those who overcome in the midst of this, who obey the Lord Jesus who live in this ruthless trust the crown is called Stephanos in the midst of that is the word Stephen the crown Stephanos in the Greek the Stephen crown it's not the crown that sits on your head like a royal crown it's the crown that sits on the head of the one who has overcome the victor's crown like the Olympic crown that sits on the head 
It's the crown of the martyr. It's For Jesus, this is one of the greatest rewards he can ever give you, is that crown of those who say, Lord, I have heard what you've asked of me, and though it costs me my life, I will overcome. I will overcome. Will you stand with me? Can you hear me today? I'm going to, I'm not going to tell you right now how to respond, <laughs> though I have some ideas always, but I'm going to ask for just a minute, would you respond to Jesus? I don't think he's just saying this to Smyrna. I think he's saying this for you to pass the test in your house, pass the test at your work, at your school, pass the test with your neighbors begin to realize whatever he's asking you to do, whether it's to die to your comfort or to die to your power or to die to success or to die to recognition, to recognize this is not the end, this is not ultimate. The other promise of Jesus in this is though you might have to go through the first death, He says, you don't have to go through the second death. You'll live forever with the Lord. Always with the Stephanos, with the victor's crown. I don't know, something about that is very appealing to me. Something worth my whole life. Lord, would you seal what you're doing today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.